0: on the verge on the verge is presented by cure cannabis used for research and education the medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion sports trauma and many other orthopedic injuries as well as skin disorders mental disorders cancer and osteoporosis to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost effective, but also safer for them and society. CURE is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. CURE does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid, Formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On the Verge, today's special guest is newly found profession that he's so fired up about, which is a senior course raider for Golf Week's Best. But he's also the regional director for Financial Distributors Group, Matt King. Matt, how are you today, buddy?
1: I'm doing great, Virgil. Good morning.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to come on. And I hate to have to take you off a great golf course to, uh, to uh, come on here. But this is such a fascinating thing. I've always wondered about the process of becoming a raider, Mm-hmm. How did you go about the process? Is it similar to Golf Digest?
1: Is is or does Golf Week have their own deal? Mm-hmm. It is. Um, uh, it's it's slightly different in terms of our rating criteria. Um, the way that I came to it was through a friend of ours at Hillwood, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Fossil, mm-hmm. uh, who had got onto the panel. And typically, what they look for is uh, people who have a background and knowledge of golf course architecture. And you have to represent that through a written application and also people that travel. Mm -hmm. And so as someone who is uh, an investment wholesaler, I was in hotels 150 nights a year, traveling all over the, primarily the Southeast. They like guys that travel that can get around and see different golf courses. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the criteria that they're looking for with Raiders. One of the interesting things is that it's not necessarily uh, someone's player ability,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which, which confuses people at times. They think you have to be a scratch player to be able to rate a course. To rate a golf course. Um, not necessarily. In fact, um, Golf Week is slightly different from Golf Digest in one key area, and that is Golf Digest has a category for resistance to scoring. hmm Yeah. Um, golf Week does not. Golf Week has a catch-all category called walk-in-the-park test. Um, so s- two slightly different philosophies. Sure. I'm probably more inclined to the Golf Week philosophy. I don't necessarily think that harder is better.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Um, it's not. It, you can make a golf course hard pretty easily. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so th- slightly different rationales there. But that's how I came to Golf Week was uh, during uh, 10 years ago. When I was traveling like crazy, Mm -hmm. and so if I were doing meetings and they were done at two o'clock, I would call a course and say, "You mind if I come and check you out, rate your course?" And most times they're accommodating.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. You like to me? I'm a I love golf course architecture, and I look back on all of the places that I've been. And there's this: the great golf courses are truly well designed for the elite player and the beginning player. So, the courses that jump out to me, like Augusta National, you can play at any skill level. Obviously, it is it is a challenge at the highest end, but you can still get it around there with angles and basically just hit, you know, you won't have to hit the ball really high to, to work it around because you can bounce it in there. But the two courses that jump out to me the most, as in, like, because it's not as hard as Augusta, is Bandon Dunes, the actual Bandon Dunes, not not just the resort but that golf course and sweetens cove mm-hmm. which is like no matter how good or not good you are at golf you feel like you just had an awesome experience and you played a golf course that you can get around unlike Kiwa islands ocean course where I'm, I'm, I'm like i'm not sure you could actually pay me to go
1: play there again <laughs> well yeah, it's, it's funny uh, before moving on to Bandon, uh, it was just yesterday that I had a conversation with a good friend of ours, Mark Sedlowski, mm-hmm. who's a four handicap or three handicap, uh, who had Kew Island was so hard, he had to play the back nine with range balls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because on the front nine, a four handicap had lost every ball in his bag. Uh, but you're right about Bandon. I've been to that complex four times, yeah. uh, right when it opened. And, um, it's easy to get around you will lose some golf balls in the heather oh yeah um but there's width there you have a ground game you have an air game um and now the the new sheep ranch which i'm looking forward to checking out man no kidding um, they've got a design on a small acreage plot with no sand bunkers yeah um which is an interesting trend that's coming along
0: yeah, well, I can tell you the superintendents do not like sand,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> especially if you combine it with fifty mile an hour coastal winds.
0: Yeah, you got that uh, right. Yeah, but uh, to me, that I tell people all the time, I've probably said it ten times in my podcast. If you give me one round of golf to play in the rest of my life, I'm going to play Cypress Point because I think it's the greatest place I've ever mm. been. But if you're going to give me a whole weekend, I'm going to abandon Dunes. It's such a magical yeah. experience. Yeah, probably starting because it's really difficult to get to, and then once you get there, <laughs> yeah, it's. It's unlike anything that I've ever
1: experienced. Yeah, it is. It's just like playing in Scotland, just harder to get to. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> no doubt about uh, it. But yeah, once you're there, from sun up to sundown, it is just pure golf and uh, great experience. Yeah, I look forward to getting
0: back there. When you when you I love talking about Band and Dunes. I got such a passion for it. Of the four golf courses that you have played, or well, I guess the five you play the par three course. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So those five.
1: What's your favorite of the five? Uh, I'm a bit of an outlier there. My favorite is the original Bandon Dunes. Mm-hmm. Um, most people are uh, like Pacific Dunes better. Mm-hmm. Um, Pacific Dunes has some quirky holes. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. Bandon, um, I just felt like it was the fairest, most straightforward, but still challenging. Um, the 16th hole at Bandon Dunes in my opinion, is the best hole on the planet. It is such a great hole. Oh, um, my goodness. You can hit iron off the tee and have a semi-blind up the hill. You can take three wood to the left and have uh, and challenge the ridge and have a clear line to the hole. Or, well, I can't do it anymore, but you could take driver right at it, challenge the coastline. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has options, shot value, uh, to me, it's the best hole in the world. It, it but, is a But With there being hole. so many holes in the world, that's sure. a debate that's always fun. But that's mine. Yeah, uh, to
0: me, that when I've played, I've been there twice, and I've played them all three times. So, yeah, no, Bandon Trail's only twice. So I found, like, when I first get out to Bandon Dunes, I mean, we were playing, it was like 53 degrees, and the wind was blowing 35. And after the first hole, I didn't know what to expect, because that was a pretty harsh wake-up call. To play straight, the second shot straight into the wind, but as it got going along, I was like, "Wow, you can bounce the ball in here, all over the place." Mm-hmm. And Pacific Dunes, you can't do that. The Pacific Dunes is much more of a championship test of golf. It is, and not—I don't think the first is the first thought of that golf course was the the, the expeditious a, a way that they're going to be able to get people around it. Yeah. Yeah, but
1: uh, and it has a quirky, it has a quirky routing and a quirky sequencing of holes. When you have two par threes back to back, yeah, uh, back to back. Um, Tom Doak would would tell you he's still bitter that David Mac- McClay Kid got the first piece of <laughs> of land choice and he got second choice. Um, but it also has some great holes. Um, oh yeah, the par threes who, of the whole place are par threes are great. The, the the split fairway double green. Uh, on eight, yeah, it's one of the coolest holes you'll you'll see. Um, so it, it's like talking about your children and saying yeah. nice things about your children. Um, because I say that I prefer abandoned dunes doesn't mean that yeah. I think less dislike uh, Pacific dunes. What's uh, your feeling on abandoned trails? First time I played it, I hated it. Uh, did not like it at all. And and this is this is something that Raiders have to. Uh, a couple things that raiders have to get out of their head and clear their head before they rate a golf course. Um, Number one is there's always a tendency to rate courses that you play well. Mm -hmm. You hear that all the time, folks. Oh, I love that course. I shot 74. I hate that course. I shot 90. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Those two two things really don't matter. Um, But there were some holes like 15, which is a short par 4 that had a green complex that was – it was just awful, yeah. and they fixed it. Um, the The ball on number sixteen stairway to heaven, the the that the, yeah. <laughs> the straight uphill par five. I, I mean, I, it was stairway to the emergency room for me after <laughs> <I played laughs> thirty three holes that day. Yeah, um, they fixed that hole, so they've done some things where they've re engineered. Mm-hmm. Uh, re-engineered the course to make it softer and more playable. And so the second time I played it, I liked it much, much better. Part of that was the work that they did on the course. Mm-hmm. Part of that was me changing my mindset Sure, um, to realize it's not all about me. Yeah. Did, did they change
0: the 18th fairway, which was so radically severe, like a Razorback? Like it was so humped. Like everybody, like I was fortunate. I drove it past the... The, mm-hmm. the, the basically the middle of the fairway ridge that kicked it left right mm-hmm. into the fairway it bunkers. got into
1: the downslope yeah, yeah it got
0: into the downslope but not my, the people that i was there with man they hit it right down the chute they get up there they can't find the ball it's <laughs> down in that fairway bunker. <laughs> and I, like standing on the 15th tee i was thinking that might have been the best golf course that i had played out there as i'm standing on 15 t and 15 16 17 and 18 were about as anticlimactic, disappointing, and mm-hmm. as I could ever imagine. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, 15 was especially bad because you'd, unless you drive it, drive it green high, every tee ball ends in the same place, 115 yards, semi-blind up the hill. Yeah. Uh, and then the green just wasn't receptive. But um, but that's been fixed. Yeah, and, good. And it's a, it's a pretty hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and 18, yeah, having a semi-blind where balls kick off the fairway. Uh, That's no, no good. good. Yeah, but so uh, yeah, I like trails, but I would put that. I would probably put that third. Really, you like it better than Old McDonald? <sighs> Old McDonald's a hard one because I love Rainer McDonald courses, mm-hmm. um, but I just didn't get a Rainer McDonald feel. Interesting uh, when I played. Old McDonald.
0: I played it in the worst conditions I've ever played golf in, <laughs> and people ask me all the time, well, "What'd you think of Old McDonald?" I said, "Well, it reminded me of a pair of foot joys because it's the only thing that I was looking at <laughs> the whole day as <laughs> my head was down, just <laughs> making my way through Mother Nature's pain she was bringing it that day. My goodness.
1: Well, now going what, this uh, I'll probably get uh, bitten by this uh, when I go back to see the sheep ranch. Yeah, I've never played in. Extreme weather at Panda Dunes. I've always gone September, October. Yeah, that's the best time. To and go for it's sure. uh, windy, but not extreme. Um, yeah, I've never played in in crazy rain, so I've been very lucky. Yeah, you can get a, you can get a really interesting mm. uh, stretch of bad
0: weather. The second time that I went, it was riddled with a mm. ton of rain. But yeah. that's the cool thing about it. I mean, the golf course is still playable when it's super duper wet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What other cool places have you? gone and maybe outside of what everybody's used to hearing about sure that rocked your word like wow what an awesome golf course this is
1: yeah uh so one of the one of the things uh that the raiders participate in with golf week is uh called raiders retreats and there are there are six or seven hundred of us throughout the country so Uh there's a lot of course raiders and they are scheduled every month maybe every two months Retreats where anywhere between 10 and 30 raiders will gather together at a particular location, play golf courses, listen to lectures from various architects um, through the evening and get to know each other and share ideas. And I was able to go to one to Texas a few years ago. Started in Dallas. um, And then we took a charter flight to a place called Lajitas, Texas, and played a course that Lanny Watkins designed, um, all up through the mountains in the ridge line. It was right on the border of Mexico. Wow! Yeah, um, had a very unique experience. I stood up on the seventeenth tee and hit a ball into Mexico. Hit a ball over the Rio Grande into <laughs> Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that so is awesome. yeah, I would. Uh, you know, they say that you're going to need a visa to find that one. Um, we, uh, it, it, but it was a really neat design, um, right on the edge of a state park, right on the border of Mexico. What was the
0: name of the golf course again?
1: Uh, it was called Blackjack Crossing. Oh, uh, nice. The Lahitas Resort, hmm. and, uh, and and really the only way you could get there was on a charter flight. Is that you right? A long, long time to wind through West Texas to get there, but that was a really really neat experience. Lanny was there, uh, cool, did a lecture, um, and got to meet some, meet some folks who are still great friends today. So that was a unique out of out of the way place that was really cool. It's
0: always fun. I just saw something on social media. It's like the the almost always the quality of the event has a lot to do with the difficulty of getting there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and. So I'm like one of the ones I want to go to is Cabot Links up in Nova scotia. yeah have you been there?
1: I have not no uh sand valley I have Cabot no oh, what was sand valley like that's another, thats really high on my list right um there. sand valley um was like an inland band in dunes mm-hmm. um, and really, really playable, uh especially mammoth dunes. McClay kid took wits to the nth degree, really. Um, yeah, you you can drive it anywhere, but just because you can drive it anywhere, doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Um, so it has tremendous width. You could you could spend a week there and not oh, get cool. through a sleeve of golf balls. Uh, that is so cool. it is really really cool. Uh, wasn't able to play the sandbox, but was was able to play the other two. Hmm. Um, and unlike Bandit and Pacific, they have the land and the chops to take it back as far as you want. Oh, cool. Host a big-time event. I'm a big David McClay kid fan.
0: I think he does yeah. a remarkable work on both capturing the your eye arousal, like all the eye candy that he throws out there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: with a, a re- remarkable way of getting the average golfer around the golf course and the remarkable way of challenging the better player. I don't think he gets enough recognition for that in in the era that he's in. He's kind of like on that – He's underneath Doak, Core Crenshaw, and Hands at this particular point, and I think he's remarkable. He
1: is. Um, and one of the things I respect about him, and this relates back to, to Mammoth Dunes, is he was hired to do some other projects, um, some overseas projects, and there was one in um, Washington State that he was part of. And after he became famous for Band in Dunes, the folks that hired him asked him to make Golf courses that were really hard, and he realized after the fact, this is not what I'm all about. Yeah. And so when he came to Sand Valley and built Mammoth Dunes, um, he reversed course um, oh, that's and built a really big, wide golf courses. Maintained the concept of interesting green complexes mm-hmm. in the ground game, um, but it, it, having listen to a lot of golf course architects, it's very rare for one of them to say, then to say, I got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's bad business right there. Well, they, they usually have egos as, yeah. as big as mammoth dunes. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. It's art, man. It's Don't art. Don't question the artist. Yeah. Have
0: you, well, of all the, have you, have you played, what are the five best mm-hmm. golf courses that you've been to that mm-hmm. would but you can't wait get to get back and play it again.
1: Um, Peachtree uh, was one that I played recently um, that I love playing. Um, that was a fantastic one. And, and these are kind of under-the-radar ones. Yeah. It would be so easy to answer this and say, well, Pebble Beach and Muirfield and uh, places like that. I'm trying to, to think of places that are unique mm-hmm. that some folks might not think of. Because when you think Georgia – you think augusta national that's right um peach tree was just a phenomenal experience um where you're playing through the pine trees, but yet there's tremendous width yeah um green complexes that just blow your mind um, that was a crazy one, yeah um one of the other ones is we, we talked about um Kiwa Island, yeah, most people go to Kiwa Island, they think ocean course um To me, if when I go back to Kew Island, I'm going back to Cacique. Yeah, everybody talks about Mm Cacique. Which is a fascinating golf course that Tom Watson designed. Amazing that Tom Watson has only designed one golf course that I know of. Yeah. I can't think of anyone other than Casique. We did some work locally uh, in Missouri or Kansas City. Yeah. but it is really, really neat. Low country golf, yet he's moved enough earth to give it a Scottish feel. So there's elevation change and mounding. He's put some of the classic Scottish bunkers, the, the Principal's Nose and the Spectacles. and oh, wow. uh, Just a really, really neat routing and fun to play, mm-hmm. um, which is different than Kew Island. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Have you ever played Tobacco Road? I have not. I, I've been to Pinehurst the last three years and have not have not gone there yet me either but i hear it's something that i need to go see is what was what i hear yeah it, it it gets similar reviews to a sweetens cove yeah where it just takes um the feature shaping to the extreme yeah um though tobacco road has more blinds and semi blinds than sweetens cove sweet cove is pretty much right in front of you mm-hmm. um but yeah at some point uh because it's it, it's Two thirds of the way from the Raleigh Airport to the heart of Pinehurst, back mm-hmm. the Road. Some point on the way there or the way back, I'm going to stop by and see it.
0: A lot of people talk about Pinehurst uh, as a as a as a, almost like if you've never been there, you can't understand. Yeah. I that's one of the last places that I have yet to go. I have not been to Pinehurst yet. What's it? Uh, what's your feeling? The whole Pinehurst experience?
1: Um, like Banded Dunes, but with more old people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I love about Pinehurst is everybody there is pretty much into golf. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a way it, of life. It, it, it's yeah. Golf is, is just part of the fabric of that place. So when you're at a restaurant or you're out and about everything is about golf. Otherwise, why would you live in Pinehurst? Yeah. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. Um, I love it uh, just for the feel. Um the golf courses are challenging. They they've all got kind of that Ross feel of the ground game. Mm-hmm. Uh but there's also water features and sure. Um it, there are, there are just hundreds and hundreds of golf courses there that um are fun and accessible and playing, yeah. playable.
0: Of the of the Pinehurst resort courses mm-hmm. obviously 2 gets a lot of the recognition but 4 8 are all mm-hmm. spectacular. What? Give me the readout on 2, 4, and 8 and any of the yeah. other ones that are, that are there that are so spectacular. Um,
1: yeah, they say play the even numbers mm-hmm. <laughs> when you go there. <laughs> um, to me, two, two, 2 is a little bit extreme um, and probably gets a little bit too much publicity for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to play the redone number 4 by Gil Hance, who... Uh, redid what Fazio had done. I never played the Fazio version of number four, Mm -hmm. Uh, but Gil Hans did a great job uh, with number four. Has more elevation change than number two, has some water features different than number two. Um, The green complexes are just as challenging in terms of the movement within the green complexes but you don't have that reverse bowl effect where balls are repelled into the green and so for me that was a lot more fun Mm -hmm. um to have a course with a little bit more width um than you would have on number two yeah And, and number two um in terms of width has gone and put in a lot of native grass and sandy soil
0: yeah
1: um I went to the U.S. Open in 1999, didn't play the course at that time, but got to see the course in 1999. And to me, it looked like a lot more fun in 1999 than it, than it was when I played it three years ago. Uh-huh. You would get a lot of balls where you would hit it in the fairway and a slightly misangled shot would run into the scrub rush. Um, there was no second cut to keep it uh-huh. in play. It would run through the fairway. And so maybe maybe the... Core Crenshaw philosophy of retro, the retro look back mm-hmm. to what Ross had in some of the saddle and some of the aerial photos was their intention, mm-hmm. but they took away a lot of width and to me took away some of the fun of number two.
0: Yeah, I think the that's what my kid, in my opinion, does better than everybody else, which is he gets all talent levels off the tee comfortably
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then taxes your approach. Right, and but only in a way that it's deceiving, you know, there's plenty of room, but the, how he bunkers it and how he slopes it makes you feel like there's way less room. Mm-hmm. But when you get up there, after you play his courses a couple of times, you can really start to, you know, pour the steam to it because you can get your angles and stuff, but he's very good at deceiving you right. from the fairway. Well, yeah. I always found like Irish golf to be extremely penalizing off the tee and more open around the green where scotland is a little bit more the other way around which just gives you a little more room off the tee but it is really penalizing with the bunkers up by the green Mm -hmm. and i don't really feel like a vast majority of people enjoy being taxed off the tee
1: i agree i don't think that they do i agree with that um yeah, it, it it's a horrible feeling walking two hundred and forty yards not knowing whether you're gonna find your golf ball. Yeah. <laughs> All day long. You're right. Key right. Island. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 um and the use of bunkering to create that visual to me, um, works a whole lot better than trees and native grass. Yeah. Um when you find your ball in a bunker, you found your ball in a bunker. Yeah. Um, and if the bunker's are reasonably designed, you can still advance and play the hole.
0: Yeah, for sure. I've always um, been intrigued by how the re- – because right now there's – because maybe, whether it's because the economy or whether because there's just not as much land out there, but now the architects are more into renovations mm-hmm. than they are in designing their own or building their own facility. Um Hillwood is obviously where mm-hmm. we're members, and Hillwood was renovated by the the, the Renaissance Group that mm-hmm. Doke's a part of. And obviously, mm-hmm. Doke didn't come to to Hillwood, but his group did. On the renovation side of it, what are, what are some cool renovations that you've seen?
1: Yeah, I have. I have not yet seen it, but I'll. This will give you kind of some background on the the renovation scene. Um, I grew up caddying at a place called Lanark, um, which is an interesting trivia question for this week. (laughs) It was the site of the first-ever Stroke Play PGA. No kidding. 1958. So, 1957 to 58, the PGA went from match play to stroke play. And the first one was at Lanark Country Club, which is where I grew up caddying. Mm. And um, I drove back through there last Christmas, and I didn't recognize it. They had taken trees out. I don't know that they left any. Um, <laughs> I was driving down the middle of the road that, that splits the golf course. I could see the clubhouse. I could see the 18th green. I could see the first tee. And uh, background to that, it's being re- redone by a guy named Brian Schneider. Um, and he's going to do it in two pieces. Mm-hmm. One, one side of the road one year, the other side of the road the other year. And in talking to some folks... He was just amazed at how the golf course had become overgrown, how the greens had shrunk. And at today's green speeds, where every member wants them at 12 to 14, Mm -hmm. um, he was just struck by this revelation that, you know, how do women and children play this? Yeah, (laughs) 100 percent. You as a golf instructor know that there's not a whole lot of people that can hit a greenside lob wedge. Head high and, and landed on a tabletop. No doubt. And so, um, you know, his trend was to take out the trees, add width, which improves turf quality, um, use bunkering and mounding, uh, grass bunkers um, mm-hmm. to create eye candy and to create challenge for good players, um, and to greenside to create chipping areas so that um, – your mother in law doesn't have to hit a head high 60 out of a greenside bunker shot and stop it on time. Um, because if we continued on this trend of creating golf courses to host a U.S. Open or a state open, um, women and children are are just going to quit.
0: Never going to play.
1: Um, it's just, it just be no fun. So yeah. um, that's a neat renovation. And, and Brian's part of the Doak Tree. He's yeah. a, a colleague of Bruce Hepner, And, um, and that kind of aligns with the golf week philosophy is that resistance to scoring um in my disposition doesn't make a golf course good exactly um it should be just as fun for Matt King seven handicap who hits at two thirty five two forty off the tee as it is for Virgil who hits at three hundred as it is for your boys and your wife yeah, um it should be just as much fun and challenging for everybody,
0: one hundred percent and to me. I think we're starting to see a trend back toward that because there's so many people about our age maybe a little bit older that grew up playing golf courses that were manageable and then and our you know when we started to play the best golf of our life we we were in an era of ridiculously challenging golf and now we don't have time for that mm-hmm. and it's nice to have the Sweetens Cove and the Tobacco Road and like not that it's an architectural land you know like a super award winning event but McCabe is Mm -hmm. a great place for this in Nashville Mm -hmm. because you can whistle around it in an hour and 30 minutes each nine holes they got three nine holes there and you always usually you usually shoot way lower than you normally do Mm -hmm. and it the first thing I noticed the very first time I played it and I resisted playing it because I heard it was not that that good was like wow i didn't even really play that great i shot 64 (laughs) and you think to yourself when you can talk out loud and say i shot 64 your brain can't distinguish 64 at mccabe versus Mm -hmm. 64 at mirrorfield village yeah and it's interesting there's been a bunch of cool studies done on pga tour players and almost all of the best tour players grew up on a golf course that was that fostered low scores mm-hmm. and not many people come from the challenging golf courses because they've never shot super low scores mm-hmm. and the the perfect example of this is Michael Allen so he won a US senior open mm-hmm. and never won on the PGA tour but always had a great US open record because he grew up playing Olympic club and his lowest round in Olympic club was 69 mm-hmm. so he got to this place where the harder the golf course was, the more dangerous he was as a player because he could grind out pars, but he never really shot mm. super low scores in his lifetime and if anybody if you 've ever played Olympic Club, that is a massively challenging geometry event, mm-hmm. which is constantly reverse canted fairways to yeah, a, yeah. the exact opposite slope <laughs> green it's a that 's one of my all time favorite golf courses, yeah. but it is you got to really be on your game if you feel like you 're going to play good golf there
1: and and I enjoy those. Experiences now and again mm-hmm. um, and there's a place for for those courses um, and maybe it's just that I've matured, mm-hmm. or maybe that my game's not what it used to be, yeah um, but I'm kind of over that as an everyday experience, and you know one of the things that always cracks me up is is when someone will say, "Well, that course is too easy." <laughs> <laughs> what's that mean Uh, yeah unless you're playing on the pga tour the word easy with golf should never be used in conjunction with each other 100 Um, you know i don't know i don't know about you but i bet i bet that day you shot 64 was pretty fun absolutely and it didn't matter whether the course was hard easy or not you had fun um i kind of like it when i make two or three birdies and shoot 77 as a, a six or seven handicap that's fun yeah um and I don't really care if the course was easy or hard. I played well and had fun. Yeah. Um, and those days where I go to a place like Peachtree or Cacique or Island Course or, or places like uh, Philadelphia Cricket Club. Oh, wow. Um, and play really, really difficult golf courses. That's nice um, as an experience, but surely not every day. Not because every day. Because golf is hard. Whew. <laughs> let's make no mistake about it. As a teacher, you know golf is hard.
0: I have job security. <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is a hard game. Yeah, you're from Philly, mm-hmm. and so I mean, there's a lot of great golf in Philadelphia. Yes. obviously, Marion gets the a lot mm-hmm. of the credit, and just across the the state line is Pine Valley. Mm-hmm. But you also have so many amazing tracks around a Mink Cricket yeah. Club. Yeah, of all of the of that little
1: conglomerate sure. right there. What's your favorite? Um, yeah, it's, there, there's so many good golf courses that when I tell people I grew up at Lanark in Philadelphia, uh, well, I've yeah, never heard of it. Um, well, it hosted a major, <laughs> um, but it does get lost uh, in, in in those Philadelphia courses. Um, f- Philadelphia cricket, uh, difficult as it is, mm-hmm. uh, is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done a deforesting Like you've never seen, I want to say, 1,500, 2,000 trees. Wow. um, Created interior interior sight lines and show off the great landscape. That's a Tillinghast course. Mm -hmm. Um, Philadelphia Cricket is a great one. But there's also little hidden gems. Uh, Golf Mills is a Donald Ross course. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably only has about 150 members. Oh, wow. Um, And... You haven't heard of it because they don't want you to hear about it. Yeah. And uh quirky little short Donald Ross course. There's a place called Manufacturers, which I'll be playing next week, which is a Flynn uh-huh. um, that's right down the street from Philly Cricket. doesn't get a lot of publicity, but it's a great course. And uh, and then one more I'll mention um, is a place called Cobb's Creek, hmm. which is the other place where I actually grew up playing. I grew up caddying mm-hmm. at Lanark. Cobb's Creek hosted a – um, Cobbs Creek hosted a U.S. amateur Pub mm-hmm. Links back in the 20s. Cobbs Creek is the creek that runs by number 11 at Marion, mm-hmm. where Bobby Jones clinched his grand slam. Um, and they are potentially working on a gilhance led restoration similar to a Beth Page in an East Lake. Oh, wow. Interesting.
0: So, one of the cool things now that we get a chance to talk about is. The, the gifts that you've been able to have from having a successful financial career in the, in the financial wholesalers. How did you get involved in financial wholesaling? And, and obviously, it's allowed you to do some really cool things. Talk to us about your career there and how you ended up in that world.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll tie it in uh, to golf to some degree. Yeah, um, I grew up caddying at Lanark, and so probably the first— time I carried a bag I was 13 years old Uh Um, and it's a shame that caddying isn't what it used to be Mm -hmm. Um, but caddied um, from my teenage years all through college uh, I was on the golf team at University of Delaware Mm -hmm. Um, people ask me all the time did you play golf in college and I always reply well that would be an exaggeration (laughs) uh, (laughs) to say that I played college golf but I was on the team uh, for four years, and afterwards, everybody on the team kind of got into a club pro job, mm-hmm. and I had considered that. Um, but one day I was chatting for a guy named Jim McHugh, who was Ben Hogan's personal lawyer. I don't know how he got from Texas to suburban <clears throat> Philadelphia, but <clears throat> he still had kind of a Texas disposition. And he asked me what I was going to do after college, and I said, I don't know. I might go down to Florida, be an assistant pro kind of see what's happening in the golf business and he said son you like eating hot dogs or steak I, said, I like steak he said well you need to get into that stockbrokering business because um, if you're going to be an assistant pro you're going to eat a lot of hot dogs and so uh, at that point I kind of set my sights on that my uncle is a uh, or at that point was a stockbroker with Merrill Lynch and he told me about this job called wholesaling mm-hmm. uh, where you represent various financial products and investments through investment brokers. And I got hooked in after working a desk job in downtown Philadelphia with a good friend from high school who was working for a company called Planco, which is a distributor for the Hartford, Mm -hmm. um, doing investments. And um, he was telling me about his job, and and it was a feed. They were an investment wholesaler. And uh, he said, you've already got your securities license. You're working in Philadelphia. You're making 18 grand a year. You can come out work in suburban Philadelphia. You don't have to pay the city wage tax and they'll pay you $22,000 a year. He said, "And you answer calls on the desk and then after a little while you get a wholesaling territory." He said, "And Matt, we've got guys here that are so stupid making six figures." Hmm. I Said, huh, That's <clears throat> interesting." I said, "What's the catch?" He said, well, the catch is you pretty much have no say or no idea where they're going to send you. So uh, I said, "Ah, what the heck? I'm 24 and broke. If it doesn't work out, I'll be 26 and broke. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. Living with my parents, I can always move back. Well, uh, long story short, they sent me uh, on my first territory to Nashville. Uh, I had no idea what Nashville was all about, but figured, what the heck? Yeah. Yeah. I can only play golf eight months out of the year in Philadelphia. I can play ten in Tennessee. Could have been worse. They could have sent me to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And so in 1995, uh, moved to Nashville and wholesale investment products for 25 years. Hmm. And um, it 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 was an It's an interesting life because you spend so much time on the road. Yeah, um, you know, 150 nights a year in a hotel. But got to meet so many great people and see so many great places, Um, uh, and and learned so much Mm -hmm. in just dealing with people, um, wholesaling investment products. What do you feel like the greatest talent is to have to be in the wholesaling business? Um, there's really twofold. Um, You you have to have uh, an extroversion and a work ethic. Um, you really have to love talking to people, um, because the fish don't always jump in the boat. Yeah. You really have to send out a lot of lines and you really have to talk to a lot of people. Um, but you also, you also have to have technical knowledge. Yeah. Um, you can't just be a glad hander and a drink buyer and a, you know, a steak eater. Sure. And a take guys out to play golf mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. um, though Those things help. You do have to have a technical knowledge because ultimately as a, it, it, you're kind of a consultant. Yeah. Um, there's only two ways that you add value long-term. One is you have to tell someone something they don't know. Correct. Or enhance their business. There's a lot of subsets to enhancing their business. Sure. Um, but if you're an investment advisor who's running a business – an advisory business, and a wholesaler comes to see you to distribute their product. Mm-hmm. Um, they can get a lot of the information off the internet, sure. Um, so you have to tell them they, something they don't know, or enhance their business. Um, and that's a challenge. It takes a lot of lot of work to understand the. Technicalities of the investment business and the investment world, and the the change the, the changes are constant. Oh yeah. Um, but there was yeah, there was a time where wholesaling was pretty easy. You know, you just walk in with your Amex and say stakes for everybody, let's go, and people would do business with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it evolved yeah. to be a lot more challenging. Similar, okay. probably similar to being a golf pro in some yeah. way.
0: Yeah. It definitely that world is so intriguing to me because there are some things we just don't know we have no idea what the markets are going to do we haven't we have history to base it on how it might recover but each recovery has its own unique twist to it and you know you've probably now been
1: through how, how many economic crises have you been through three well let's see the 99 2000 we had the tech wreck yeah uh 2008 we had, uh, the banking mortgage derivative crisis. Yeah. Uh, and now we've had COVID. So yeah. let's see, we lost 50% of our money in 99. We lost 40% in 08. We lost 35% um, here recently this year. It's a good thing I never got a divorce along the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really hard to lose, to build wealth when you lose money 30 and 40% at a time. Yeah. But even as awful as that sounds, um, the long term track record of the market and United States ingenuity mm-hmm. um, is still pretty darn good. If you look at a Nibbitson chart which shows the long term history of stocks, it's still an uptrend. Yeah. Um, but um you know, you've you you gotta take some you gotta take some triple bogeys along the way.
0: Yeah. That's so true. That's <laughs> what a great way to put it there. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know that there's going to be a five birdie run, but you also have to know right. there are going to be a couple of four putts, a couple of balls OB. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the thing that it's, and that's probably what makes the art of what it is that you did so fun is because you, you always were trying to stay ahead of the game while not mm-hmm. really having any idea what that means.
1: Yeah. You know, um, And the other long-term lesson of the market, which was always in conflict with what we did as as product promoters, um, and I look back on this now, in some ways with regret, but also acknowledging that it it, it just was, is that in financial markets, what's timely is not always sellable, and what's sellable is not always timely. Mm -hmm. So when the market goes down 35%, what is timely is putting a whole bunch of money in the market yeah. because it just went on sale for 35%. Mm. What's sellable is a 2% CD. <laughs> 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 and when the market's going up like crazy, everybody wants to buy the market. What's, what's not sellable is a 5.5% AA municipal bond. Yeah. And so as a product promoter, I was paid to sell um and so there was always this balance as to promoting what was sellable as opposed to what was timely yeah um and in fairness to myself in retrospect there were times you didn't know the difference yeah um but that is one of the difficult things of investing. What's timely is not sellable, and what's sellable is not timely. Um, kind of like to hit a draw, you have to swing. As a right-hander, you have to swing to the right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> go figure. <laughs> to a
1: cut, you got to swing to the left. To get the ball to go up high, you have to swing downward. Um, Who would have thought? These things aren't intuitive, um, mm-hmm. and they're oftentimes uncomfortable. Uh, but that was always a difficult thing about investment wholesaling, is yeah. that, that timeliness and sell- sellability – seemingly always in conflict
0: yeah i find that this this time we're in right now obviously is the most unique time probably in our lives for sure but this is one of the more radical business cleansing uh and not in a good way my what mm-hmm. i want to clarify that not in a good way i mean there are people like the restaurant industry mm-hmm. and the hospitality industry are getting its butt kicked yeah and it and it the, the thing that's so interesting about it is those those businesses employ a lot of people. This is such a bizarre time. And, of course, I'll, I'll give the credit where it might be due, which is it evolves. And this is so new that people are just constantly, we're just reacting to what we what mm-hmm. we see. We're not really, we can't be proactive yet because we don't even know what exactly we're doing. But how do you sense the, the recovery mm-hmm. for our country is going to be in the financial world because it's weird. Because the stock market, although it is coming back down again, it's bizarrely highly rated for as radically offset the economy is at the moment. Mm-hmm. What's your take on where we're headed?
1: Um, this is a this is a hard one. Now this this kind of gets into market commentary. So yeah, um, years ago um, I got an accreditation called the Certified Investment Management Analyst, the CIMA. Um, And the instructor for our prep class, his thought was: "There's really only one thing you got to remember. There's one equation that matters in finance, and he said it's one plus r to the t. One plus the expected return, present future cash flows discounted to the value of time. So a cash flow today is worth more than a cash flow seven years from now. So one plus r to the t. It's the way you value stocks. It's the way you value bonds." It's the way you value if you 're going to buy a franchise business yeah. um, it 's the way you value everything is the present value discounted by time of present and future cash flows and it 's the way you value the stock market, yeah, and so a lot of times you 'll see about p e and forward earnings that 's the hard part right now is that we don 't know what present future cash flow looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, current earnings have been okay, um, I can't imagine that future earnings are not going to be affected by what's happened. It has to. It, it has to be affected. Um, and the valuations of the stock market in a lot of areas are as high as they were in 1999, which was the first crisis that, yeah. uh, that I had seen. So um, it's a hard one to analyze right now because we just don't know what the data looks like, yeah. and and we've seen a head fake in this market. We saw it go down thirty five percent. We saw it bounce right back up. Yeah, um, a head fake. What, but, a, what a great term. Um, what a great term. But I I, I look at um, valuations of stocks and the uncertainty of future earnings. And uh, I'm particularly cautious right now. Yeah. I don't. I, I do have. Uh, I do have investments in stocks, things mm-hmm. that I own long term, because the long term story of stocks is, is is still where you make money. Especially yeah. when a, you have a 30 year treasury, your 15 year treasury, 10 year treasury as low as it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to imagine that companies won't be affected by this. Mm-hmm. And we just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, we just haven't seen it yet because yeah. everybody's still reeling. Mm-hmm. You know the unknown. Mm. Is
0: pretty radical. Now the
1: the flip side of it is, and and this was the lesson of the recovery in '08. Um, this is what we do in the investment business. We always hedge our bets. We never say anything definitively. Yeah. Um, the other side of it is, if the government keeps printing money to prop up this stock market, they can make it go up. Yeah. Um, it'll neg. It, it it won't be good for our currency. Um. But they can make this market go up just by pumping money into it through Fed policy and through stimulus. Yeah. Um and, and maybe that maybe that's the head fake. Maybe that's the story of the market for the next five years.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So true. And it's been a pretty remarkable story so far about the things that you've done, both in the rating world and in your profession. But I would be remiss to think that it's been a straight shot ride to, to success. Is there anything that you've had to endure in your, your professional career that made you dig deeper than you've ever had to dig before? And now you draw on that moment anytime things get tough, cause you know, you can overcome it.
1: Yeah. Um, you, those ups and downs of the market are difficult to deal with. Um, and it's also, it, it, it becomes more difficult to deal with, um, when you're oftentimes lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those 150 nights a year that I used to spend in a hot- hotel were by myself. Yeah. And so um, that makes it real, that, that, that makes the tough times really hard. Yeah. Um, not that you ever want to be a complainer, but there is something comforting about being in a large group that's dealing with difficulty all at the same time. Mm-hmm. When you're alone, um, that's more challenging. I was very fortunate to have some great mentors along the way. Um, mm-hmm. People that I could call on that would sympathize with me and understand what I was going through, um, people that I could lean on, um, and people that could give long-term perspective mm-hmm. similar to the perspective that I'm able to offer now, having been through ninety nine and eight and now and now um, hmm. that uh, that life is never a straight shot upward. Yeah, no kidding. no kidding. Um yeah, I mean it, 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 you look at $1,000 invested in stocks and it's worth millions and millions of dollars and you see that uptrend, but there's there's a lot of downward times in any uptrend. Yeah. Um and so having mentors that could offer perspective um to know that times would change. Yeah. Um and 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 on the flip side too, um during good times it's important to have perspective um you know, one of the things i say to people is no one ever thinks about the hangover when they're busy getting drunk yeah that's so <laughs> true that's exactly <laughs> and, right and i look back on my career um with perspective not just on the bad times but the good times yeah. uh, that during those good times i should have braced myself for the idea that um Bad times don't last forever, but neither do good times. Yeah, trying to stay in the middle while
0: experiencing, all, you know, basically we're only in the middle while we're passing back and forth between the rough right. and the good. Right. Uh, that's a pretty. That's pretty interesting. What's the What's the coolest or the most profound piece of advice one of your mentors gave you?
1: Um, one of the things I always thought about as a discipline, um, because to survive in any career for a long, long time, there has to be a certain amount of discipline, Mm -hmm. Um, was to never eat alone. Oh, that's a great... Or to try to never eat alone. Um, And so, I always had a lunch meeting. Um, And and when you're making your own schedule, making your own appointments, and you're trying to build a business, it's all about contacts and interaction with people, and so... I always had a lunch meeting because then I figured, well, I a lunch meeting. Well, I might as well get up and do a 10 o'clock. And mm-hmm. after lunch, I might as well do a 2 o'clock. And then all of a sudden, you got yourself a pretty productive day. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the disciplines and one of the pieces of advice that I got called uh, to, to always have a lunch meeting. And now people have written books called Never Eat Alone. Yeah, um, no kidding. But that was a discipline that I took on when I first started it was given to me by a guy named Tim Seifert who was my first divisional manager he said always always have a lunch meeting because it will everything will will go from there it's fascinating like the the,
0: it's becoming the lost art of human connection people just don't find that that important I think it's very bizarre that people are they're more apt to sit at a table and text each other than they would be to talk to each Mm -hmm. other strange strange times when it comes to how yeah. we interact with each other it's kind of yeah. bizarre
1: and and i struggle i struggle with that from a business sense um because it is and and especially with covid yeah um there's no face to face meetings there's no group presentations there's um some of that personal interaction is is, is lost um and and to tie it back to golf um boy, it makes golf so much better (laughs) Um, Four hours in the company of people. Yeah. Talking, expressing yourself, experiencing joy and failure and disappointment, um, together, Mm -hmm. um, in this world right now where there's so much bad news and where there's so little human action interaction because of COVID and because of technology. Yeah. Um, i just love playing golf just for the pure experience of human interaction enjoyment of nature no doubt about it the greatest
0: winner so far of this crazy pandemic has to be golf (laughs) yes i mean especially in the cities like the hours Mm. that it stayed open yeah it was the actually the only outlet that Mm -hmm. most people had uh and that's why in my opinion golf has its ups and downs just like anything does Mm -hmm. but golf's not ever going to die because there's There's a lot of things that people Mm -hmm. forget is that in the business world, where else are you going to get five hours of time with somebody and get a beautiful test? Of character mm-hmm. to watch, like you, you go out there mm-hmm. knowing you're going to go play Philadelphia Cricket Club, and you're all fired up because it's an awesome track. But you also know that this person that you're playing with is going to mm-hmm. divulge some secrets about <laughs> the future of what it might be like to work with them. Is this going to yeah. be a great partnership or not? Yeah, does he like to roll the ball in the rough? Does he like yeah. to rake back that three footer and not, knock mm-hmm. it back in the second time around and call it a four? You know, yeah. all of those things. But it's also there aren't many things left that you can spend mm. with the people that you love, doing yeah. something for four or five hours, competing, the thrill of competition, walk in nature, and spend time with your with yeah. your family. That's to me the, the time that I spend yeah. with my boys out there is. Oh, yeah, it's 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 something I'll never be yeah. able to get back because time is the ultimate. Mm. Uh, in what it takes. You know, that, that's the ultimate gift, what you're giving away. Yeah. And to be able to spend it with them, doing something that everybody loves to do, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I was i was so fortunate, um, even though my parents weren't members of a golf course, um, my parents barely know when into the club to hold. <laughs> Being able to caddy from age 12 or 13 on, yeah. I was able to observe all those things. I was able to observe grown men interacting with other grown men and how they reacted to a bad shot how they reacted to a good shot um, how they interacted with each other how they resolved conflict on the occasion that it would come up Mm -hmm. Um, and golf is a metaphor for life and and business in that way Um, you spend four hours on the golf course what do you spend a minute and a half hitting golf shots yeah no kidding (laughs) that's exactly right (laughs) there's a whole lot of time in between um where there's human interaction where your mind can go various places similar to business yeah um you know i would have you know three four or five meetings a day in the course of a 10-hour day there was a whole lot of other time Mm -hmm. where i had to manage emotions and manage my mind Mm -hmm. and prepare mentally um for the next meeting. For the action. Yeah. Um, and golf is like that. And so being able to observe that at a young age was great. Um, and and being able to spend time with your boys and teach them those things. Yeah. Um, teach them how to react to good shots. Teach them how to react to bad shots. Teach them how to mentally prepare um, for for what's coming, for an unknown that's coming. Yeah will serve them well in life not just in golf
0: yeah 100% well the second half of the show is based around the things you do to recharge your batteries and historically although they're being taken away at this particular moment historically it's the things that bring a lot of people together and like-mindedness whether it be for your favorite sporting events favorite concerts or getting together with family and friends over food and wine and those are my three happen to be three of my favorite things to talk about <laughs> so when you were growing up what were your favorite sports teams and sports players?
1: Um so Phil being a Philadelphia guy um was always into Philadelphia sports mm-hmm. and um I played all the sports um I played football, basketball, baseball and golf. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you know just as a side note um I wonder about the special specialization as it relates to sports. 100%. Um I think it's hard to recharge your batteries if you're always on the grind and always focusing on one sport or one particular endeavor so um i played quarterback in football played forward in basketball um i was a catcher in baseball I actually went to college to play baseball oh wow and realized um being a third string catcher <laughs> <laughs> radically overrated yeah i if i'm going to be a bench warmer i'm gonna play golf yeah um I and, I, and so a friend of mine got me under the golf team and i was a bench warmer in golf um so go- having those different sports to play mm-hmm. was always a way to stay mentally fresh um so i loved all the sports i loved all the philly teams uh, i'm still proud to be from philadelphia yeah. not sure i want to move back there but i'm proud to be from philadelphia
0: and are you big dutch always something
1: different yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Doc was my favorite basketball absolutely. player. Why would
1: Larry Bird throw a punch at him? <laughs> <laughs> Larry Bird, he, he's very combative,
0: man. Uh, he was a he was a feisty guy. Like so like my dad is a big f- like my dad loved the Celtics and I like everything except Penn State football. Mm-hmm. I every time my dad was like the Phillies, I'm the Pirates. Mm. You know, if he's the if he was the um the, the Celtics. I was the Sixers. You know, I always right. always just the the sitting like you know needle each other.
1: That that's unique. That's that's different.
0: Yeah, because like I found out real quickly though that Penn State wasn't on the table for that. Right. We're, right. we're Penn State fans here. Right. But uh, but it was funny. Like I just he loved Steve Carlton and Mike Schmidt,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, big time. And he loved Sonny Jurgensen when he was with the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Big Eagles fan, obviously.
1: Big Eagles fan. Big Phillies fan. Um. And, uh, this is a great memory of growing up in philadelphia funny story um in that i was born in 1971 so in 1977 my dad and i are walking through sears and there's a kiosk or a little display there it says you know philly super kid contest fill out a postcard drop it in the box so we did we filled out the card for the philly super kid contest and the The prize was you get to go to a Phillies game, sit in a box, have batting practice with the Phillies. Oh, wow. You get a bat, a uniform, a bike. Big, big, big deal. So as we dropped the card in the box, I said to my dad at six years old, I said, so well, when do I get to go to the Phillies game? <laughs> and my dad said, son, it doesn't, doesn't work this way. They just want to get our name and address so they can send us stuff. It, it, it's not happening. Well, sure enough, three weeks later, we get a call. <laughs> I won the Philly Super Kid Contest. That is so And at cool. age six or seven, got to have batting practice with all the great Phillies at that time. Uh, Larry Bow and Gary Maddox and Mike oh. Schmidt. And was Luzinski there? Luzinski was there. It was oh, before so Pete great. Rose. Before Pete Rose, um, though. Yeah. So <laughs> got to hang out in the dugout and have batting practice with the Phillies.
0: <laughs> My all-time favorite name, Bake McBride.
1: Love Bake McBride. <laughs> <laughs>
0: love the afro too oh man no doubt <laughs> those phillies teams back in the early 70s yeah. and 80s oof, yeah really yeah.
1: good well being a philly sports fan does uh that does teach you how to learn disappointment <laughs> uh. <laughs> it seems
0: like every city goes through that except you know well boston had like a like 80 years mm-hmm. of negative and then they're riding in a pretty good spot right now, but
1: yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, yeah. Talk about another mental discipline is is turning off the noise. Um, and, and and when I go to Philly and I turn on Philadelphia Sports Talk, uh, I'm glad that I don't live in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> um, all the complaining and yeah, the no kidding. griping and the negativity um, of Philadelphia, I don't miss that. But I still do uh, still do root for the teams yeah, because. No very often what you love as a child you love as an adult no no question um and, and i said you're a little bit different in that you rooted for the opposite team to your father very often you learn to love as a kid what your parents love mm-hmm. um, and i see that with your boys that uh you love golf they love golf yeah um you're a golf professional they pretend to be golf professionals <laughs> yes they <do. laughs> yes they do and so um yeah the the things i loved as a child i still love as an adult the yeah. things that my dad loved i still love as well yeah no question what uh when, what was your favorite music uh it, this was an area where i was a, a bit of an outlier and maybe serendipitous that i arrived in Nashville. When mm-hmm. it was all said and done, is that I liked country music growing up, really? um, which would, which you wouldn't think someone from Philadelphia would would like country music. Um, but even in my early teens, mm-hmm. um, I liked country music. I went to the first concert I ever went to was a Randy Travis concert in Lehigh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was very strange that God would send me to. The home of country music, okay. liking country music in in Philadelphia. I was a little weird that way. Yeah. Randy Travis. That guy's <laughs> got a voice on him. Holy cow. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. What's the best concert you've ever been to?
1: Hmm. Um, the best big stage concert, um, I got to see Garth Brooks twice last time he was town, He mm-hmm. was fantastic. Um, the ultimate show. Right? It was really, really good. Um Though it is funny in his older age, he's he's kind of lost a little bit of energy, mm-hmm. uh, but he still brings it uh, brings it every night. My favorite place to listen to music, though, is still the Bluebird Cafe. No kidding. Um, yeah, I it, there's there's something wonderful about the intimacy of watching a songwriter in the round and hearing them tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like listening to a podcast um, where you really get to know the songwriter. Um yeah. and, and the story of the song is the songwriter. It's not necessarily the performer. Yeah, I'm no um, kidding. So uh, if, if I were given the choice to go see Keith Urban, well, Keith Urban, my wife would make me go see Keith Urban. Yeah. But if I were given the choice to go see some generic country music star at the Bridgestone or listen to four legendary songwriters at the Bluebird, I'd probably pick the Bluebird. Yeah.
0: I have not been to the Bluebird yet. Mm. I've been invited a bunch of times but just couldn't make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have interviewed a bunch of people on on this podcast that are songwriters that do go there, and to listen to them tell the stories of – their songs and the, the oh, we're, I just did a show at the Bluebird. We talked about this. I mean, I interviewed the guy who's written more number one songs than anybody ever, Ashley Gourley. And he sat here and you would not have known the, the number one he just, when I interviewed him, he had just passed Paul McCartney mm. for the most number one songs ever written. Wow. Right. So he's sitting here and he's just telling you stories about his songs and about being at the Bluebird and, so with all like some like three or four other big names mm-hmm. and just imagine that you're sitting there with a the guy who's written 50 number one songs mm-hmm. and like to hear the where they come from in his mind
1: it's really really interesting it it's, it's a fascinating experience and uh i haven't been in a while the the, the tickets are harder to come by than they used to be yeah. before it's gotten around yeah thanks to tv uh yeah uh but for me that's a that's a great Musical listening experience because oh, yeah. you you really do get to hear some great stories and listen to great music in it's it's purest form. There's there's no there's no fireworks. There's no lasers. Um, there's just a guy and a guitar, maybe a keyboard, yeah. um, and that's it. It's funny, you know, like to me,
0: I love. I'm a rock and roll guy mainly. I'm not, but I like I do appreciate all talent. I just love more rap to 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 rock and roll, and like to my favorite artist. Don't like for you to know what they wrote the song about Hmm. so that they don't interfere with your own impression of the art. But I'm always wanting to know what the song's about. Right. And so that's the thing that I've always been intrigued by is like there's the country music is about the story, Mm. you know, rock and roll is about the band.
1: Right. You know,
0: and that's the thing that's so fascinating is like I'm a big Pearl Jam fan and I'm a big Tool fan, or anything that Maynard does, really, he doesn't want to talk about his lyrics at all. Oh, it's, it's, it's Whatever you think it means to you is what I want it to mean to you. <laughs> and Eddie Vedder, outside of talking a little bit about this song or that song, leaves it completely open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. But the country music guys, man, they tell you, you know, with the date, the time, right? <laughs> what, what was going on, why they were hurting so bad, or right. why they were so excited. Right. And I think that's what makes music so great is it it yeah. just depends on well there's a lot of ways to make people move. Yeah.
1: Yeah so I love that stuff. Yeah. Uh and I like I just love that medium, the the telling of the story. Um and, and it'll be interesting to see how society evolves. Um we deal with phones and hundred and forty character blurbs and yeah. people expressing themselves technologically in real short bites. Um But there's still something in people's heart where they want to tell their story. Yeah, 100%. Um, And if you care about people, you want to hear their story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after all this COVID is said and done and we can maybe break out and break through, um, we can get back to... Telling our stories and listen to people's stories. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. I
0: can tell you that there's going to be a whole, like the vacation areas that are getting killed right now are going to be on the benefiting side <laughs> of the other side of this coin. Because, yeah. man, people cannot wait to get out. There's yeah. going to be a mass vacation coming, Yeah, I would have to imagine. Yeah, absolutely. When uh, when you think to your favorite types of food and or wine, what's your favorite region of the world like to eat in? eat and cons-
1: and consume your know, your favorite wines. Um I going back to what you love as a child, you love as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's the, there's the South Philly region, the West Philly region, the North Philly region. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and so um I, I still love all those foods, the the cheesesteaks and the pretzels. Um when I go to Philly, um I always bring back rolls and pretzels and freeze them. I've got some Amorosos frozen in my uh, freezer right now uh, to make homemade cheesesteaks. So I always like the the Philly stuff. Um, It's interesting how my food taste changed. I worked in downtown Philadelphia um, my first year out of college, and I would have people professionally ask me, like, oh, have you ever eaten at Bookbinders or Lebec Finn? And I'm like... I was poor, like I, yeah. I, I ate at the Twentieth and Chestnut food cart. Um, so growing up, I never had much of an appreciation for fine food. But uh-huh. professionally, getting to eat a lot of restaurants um, was able to develop that. And uh, and one of the the things that I came to like was seafood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Philadelphia wasn't much of a seafood place. Yeah, well. uh, but I did come to like seafood, so I I enjoy that anytime I can get it. What's
0: your What's your favorite?
1: Oh, lobster. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, nothing but the best. I've never been a lobster guy. That's interesting. <laughs> I love crab.
0: Mm-hmm. All kinds of crab. I mean, yeah. blue crab is what we're more familiar right. with in PA. Right. But king crabs and stone crabs, I mean, they're all awesome. Yeah. I'm a crab guy. And yeah. scallops. I love scallops, too.
1: I do love scallops. I, um, it, it, Being close to Baltimore, yeah. um, which we were in Pennsylvania, um, I never got the whole crab thing. You didn't? Um, no no it, it was it was just so much work for so little food <laughs> it's an event you're right, <laughs> and there are people I 've called on or accounts that i've called on where I used to joke with my colleagues. Uh, I would say this account is like eating crabs um, <laughs> I said you end up doing all this work, you get dirt and filth under your fingernails, yep. you get no meat it's warm beer um <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you go home hung over and hungry hungry with dirt <laughs> under your fingernails it's and some, and some uh, like real fine paper cuts <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right you, you've you've taken uh, that little uh, hammer and you've slammed it on your thumb four or five times uh, no so crap doubt. is never a big deal for me that's so funny
0: do you like do you are you what's you, more of a beer guy a bourbon guy or a wine guy
1: um it was always beer growing up mm-hmm. um but now uh, for better or worse, I'll drink just about anything. Yeah. Uh, probably more for worse than for better. That's <laughs> so only a perspective. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> uh, that's so cool. If, what's your favorite movie that you've ever watched? Oh boy. Um, Caddyshack always felt like the the story of my life. Yeah. Um, so true. Just have always loved Caddyshack. Um, and my friends and I always joke that we could probably write a better sequel. Well, anybody could write a better sequel than what they wrote. Um, but we have enough stories of the Caddy Yard to write Caddyshack. Um, it was just a crazy, crazy time. Of oh, yeah. Crazy kids. Different mix of ages. I mean, you'd have street bums and older retired guys and 13-year-old kids and... And and we were just brazenly crazy. I, I remember the first one of the first months that I showed up at age thirteen. Um, some of the guys set up a boxing ring in the cart barn. <laughs> they had four carts and they had ropes, and two. I guess for back, lack of a better word, street bums. They paid them money to box each other. And bet on who would win. <laughs> I'm thirteen years old thinking, What in the world is going on here? That is hilarious. Um but it was uh it was a wild and crazy scene. So when I watch Caddyshack, it takes me back to those days. Probably my favorite movie, silly as it is. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, my boys
0: are dude, like, when can we watch Caddyshack? I'm like, Well <laughs> I gotta time of this right. <laughs> um
1: and 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 To tie back to another personal side of that movie is, um, you know, I always felt like I was kind of Danny Noonan. Yeah. Um, And in 1994, I was 22 years old. um, I won the Golf Association of Philadelphia Caddy Tournament. Um, Oh, fun. Which is the, the Golf Association of Philadelphia is the second oldest established golf organization behind the USGA. Yeah. Um golf association of Philadelphia. And the Caddy Tournament is the second oldest golf association of Philadelphia tournament. Huh. Um wow, it goes cool. back that far. So interesting. Um, yeah, I was Danny Noonan. Crazy crazy caddy yard stories. Won the Caddy tournament in nineteen ninety four. And uh we never knew we never found out what uh, happened to Danny Noonan, but I bet he lived happily ever after. I think he probably did. Yeah. Well, being a Philly guy,
0: who would you take? Wilt Chamberlain, Dr. J, Allen Iveson, or Charles Barkley?
1: Who, who's the best sixer? The Wilt Chamberlain was before my time, but I, I suspect he was probably the best sixer within my time, Dr. J.
0: Yeah. Um, like, Dr. J, like, emanates what the sixers were. But Wilt Chamberlain, in my opinion, how could, you can have to argue that he might be the greatest athlete of all time.
1: Yeah. At, at almost seven feet tall, he ran... Hurdles at Overbrook High School in Philadelphia <laughs> yeah, and just a you know he's in the yeah. Hall of
0: Fame mm-hmm. in professional volleyball amazing and the most people uh, there's a uh, there's an awesome I think it's Netflix or an Amazon I watched that he's widely considered the greatest volleyball player to have ever played amazing and basketball and mm-hmm. he decided you know he got Somebody said that he only uh, he was only good because he scored a lot of points, and then he refused to shoot when he played for the Lakers, and said that he was going to lead the NBA in assists, and he did. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was an amazing player, no doubt, amazing player. Um, and I, I just love Dr. J again. Yeah. Childhood memories, and I was uh, Barkley as a player in Philadelphia wasn't the lovable character that he is now. Yeah. Um, There was an animosity there between him and the city, and and he would admit that he was immature during the time that he played for the Sixers. Yeah, Iverson, similar. Um, Similar ways. Iverson was a bit of a wasted talent, a bit immature when he played for the Sixers. But evolved, yeah. um, and is now beloved. Both guys are beloved yeah. because they evolved. Yeah. Um. They, the, but they were they were what they were immature when they played. AI is one of the most enigmatic players
0: of all time because literally in moments, unstoppable, and also difficult to be a teammate with. Kind of mm. kind of a bizarre set of circumstances, yeah. but like there are so many people that say that. Let's take MJ out of the picture. Mm-hmm. That he was the most impactful dangerous player on the court other than Jordan. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, says a lot about he could get his running. own shot yeah. anytime
1: he wanted to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It it basketball basketball's a sport where it, it truly is a team game. Um and I mentioned growing up playing football, basketball, and baseball. Um and and there was a friend group. We all played the same sports. Yeah. And as as much as we were buddies And on the same team, there was always some conflict, competitiveness, and and wanting to be kind of the hero of the Mm -hmm. team and being the spotlight of the team. And we all kind of picked up golf at the same time at age 13, 12, 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And my friend Brian, his dad noticed, he said, you know, every time these guys come home from playing golf, they're happy. They have so much fun Mm -hmm. um, and enjoy the game so much. That wasn't always the case. Football, basketball, and baseball. So true. Because um, if you won and went zero for three, there was always some discontent there. Yeah. Um, and his conclusion as to why that was the case with golf was everybody gets their own ball. <laughs> <laughs> that's a
0: great conclusion.
1: That is. In, a great In football, g- only one guy can be the quarterback, and in basketball, only one guy gets to shoot, and in baseball, there's only one hitter at a time. Oh, but right. golf. Everybody gets, gets their the ball. own ball. And that is so true. Um, and that made us happy. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Jaworski, Randall Cunningham, Donovan McNabb, or Carson Wentz. The most impactful quarterback in mm. Eagles history. I guess you could go back even further mm. than ball,
1: but I mean. Boy, I I loved uh love Randall Cunningham. Uh he was he was he was my favorite back in the day. But he so talented, throw, he could throw that football
0: so far. Yeah, like he threw it from one end zone, one side of the end yeah. zone to the other. He
1: was he was oh. he was so exciting uh, to play uh, to watch play. Um, but I do like Carson Wentz, I, it, and and that's a that's a controversial subject in Philadelphia. Is it really? Yeah, there are some people that really love him and, and see his talent. There are others that. Um, Kind of see him as soft or injury-prone or mm. kind of an howdy-doody kind of a personality. Mm-hmm. Um, not the tough, edgy Philadelphia personality. And, and and he's got to get over the fact that Nick Foles won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What a bizarre twist of fate for that guy. Because Nick Foles yeah. has been really a flop and then oh. turns into this backup quarterback superhero. Yeah. Uh, like He and Jeff Hostetler are in their own world of <laughs> yeah. backup quarterback heaven. Yeah. And then he, he doesn't get the starting job. And then Wentz gets injured again and then mm-hmm. almost leads him to the Super Bowl again. He gets a, a big deal, which he rightfully yeah. gets. And then first game, first quarter, yeah. injured. And it's like, and he's such a super guy, but like yeah. that's the kind of guy Philly likes.
1: Right, right, right. Um, and, and you know, think about fate and life. Um it, you know, someday they'll do a thirty for thirty called How the Heck Did Nick Foles win the Super Bowl? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> because, uh, the last four games of the year, the regular season games of the year he took over, he was hot and cold. He mm-hmm. had some good good games, but some clunkers too. Yeah. Um but think about their run to the Super Bowl. Um on fourth and eight, last play of the game, Julio Jones slips coming out of his route. Otherwise they lose to Atlanta. Yep. The second game they get Minnesota and Case Keenum instead of Drew Brees because of the miracle in Minneapolis. That's right. Then they go to the Super Bowl, and they play New England, who never punts, and they win. Like, <laughs> that just doesn't happen. No kidding. <laughs> no the, kidding. The, the, the twist of fate that comes with uh, winning a championship is always interesting, and I love listening. To people talk about their team, and we dominated. We were the greatest. Um, Along the way, there's probably some luck, too.
0: <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. I think back, like, one of the most memorable twists of fate's luck was with the year that University of Tennessee won the national championship, mm-hmm. that fumble at Arkansas. Like, you can't even make that up. Like, I called their win in the national championship because that doesn't happen unless it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And on a team in which didn't have Peyton Manning anymore, that they should have mm-hmm. won it with Peyton yeah. Manning. And the fact that they was just like that right there – That's a sign. Yeah,
1: every college football season has that to agree. Um, True. uh, Nebraska had the kick six, and Colorado had the fifth down, and Tennessee had their miracle. Um, Even even Alabama's dominant teams, one of their undefeated teams, trailed in the fourth quarter four times that year. That's right. Um, There's very few teams. This LSU team was dominant. Mm. The Nebraska teams of the late '90s were dominant very true but you got to get lucky oh yeah um you got to be good
0: but you gotta you, you got to get some luck too no doubt yeah final question yeah you get uh you get to play one round of golf left mm-hmm. who are the three others you're taking with you and what golf course you playing?
1: hmm uh the, the stock answer for most people is that they play with their dad somewhere mm-hmm. um my dad would be okay with me not including him in this group. But I, I have three friends growing up who I'll hopefully see this week. Um Chip Gallagher, Pat Collins, Pat Coyne, and we would play Lanark, where we grew up caddying. Oh, that's mm-hmm. so cool. And it would be <clears throat> it would be on a Monday. We'd probably tee off at about three fifteen and play in the Twilight. That would be great. That would be great. Um, Or we'd sneak on Cops Creek, (laughs) hope not to get arrested, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) not pay our greens fee, um, and do it that way. But but those are the three guys um, that I have the longest golf memories with, Um, and they're friends when I was younger, still friends today. That's awesome.
0: Well, Matt, I can't mm-hmm. thank you enough for taking time to come on The Verge and share your life's experience. Mm-hmm. I look forward to seeing you again
1: real soon, buddy. Absolutely. This was great fun. Well, well, thanks, Virgil. Appreciate, appreciate it. Mm-hmm. That was
0: awesome. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Acres. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.